0: Good morning, Life Church. It's good to see you this morning. Whether you're in the room with us or joining us online, we're glad you're here. I hope you have a Bible with you or a way to get in the Bible in front of you. We're going to finish the book of Ecclesiastes this morning. And so we've been walking through this Old Testament book for, this is the 15th week, so the majority of the summer. And today we have the joy of finishing it together. I think you'll be served well if you can get that in front of your face. And so whether you're doing that, with a physical Bible or on your device of some kind, I'd encourage you to go ahead and turn there. So it's often said that actions speak louder than words. And certainly there are some situations when that's true. Uh, But I would suggest this morning that there are also situations where our words are more powerful than our deeds. And so just consider words like, I love you. I hate you. Words like, I never want to see you again. Words like, I forgive you, or I just can't bring myself to forgive you. Words like, you're my best friend, or I'm sorry. I mean, these are words that can change the direction of our lives or the lives of other people. These are words that can bring healing or destruction to Our relationships, words that can bring rejoicing or lamenting to the situations of our lives. They're words of very great power, words of significance and consequence. They're words that change things, that create things, words that make things happen. I mean, even just imagine like when two people stand up in front of a group of people in a church sanctuary and they make promises to one another in a wedding ceremony. Now those words of promise, they're not describing marriage. They're not commenting on marriage. They're creating marriage. Because words do that. They have the power to make things, to create things. And if we understand the Bible rightly, that's because we are created in the image of a God who creates things by His words. Genesis chapter 1 gives us a picture of our God who created all things out of nothing according to his good and beautiful design. And he did that simply by speaking those things into existence. Let there be light, he said, and there was light. Genesis tells us over and over and over again that God created by his words. And then Hebrews chapter 1 adds to that the fact that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the second person of the divine trinity, he presently at this very moment is upholding all things, again, by his words. Hebrews tells us that he sustains the universe by the word of his power. And so Jesus, he holds every molecule in existence in perfect place simply by speaking. His words have power. They change things. They sustain things. That's what words do. Words have power. And it's because of the power of words, and it's because of what words do, that we have the book of Ecclesiastes. We have Ecclesiastes because the same God who created all things and who sustains all things by his powerful word still speaks to us now through his written word. He speaks still with the power to create new life in us and to sustain that life in us. He speaks still with the power to change things in us. Which is why one of the most significant and revealing realities in any of our lives is what the Word of God does to us and in us. I'm going to ask you this morning, how do you respond to the Word of God? really what kind of change does god's word produce in you really how does god's word shape your desires or your affections how does it mold your habits or your behaviors or your decisions really what does god's word do in you through you these are the questions that the book of ecclesiastes is wrestling with as it concludes in chapter 12, verses 9 through 14. Let me pray for us, and then we'll walk through this passage a verse at a time to wrestle with those same questions ourselves today, church. Father, we thank you for your word and for its power. We pray that we would witness its power even this morning as we seek to let your word shape us Inform us more fully in your image and for your glory. We pray that in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, let's jump in. Ecclesiastes 12, verse 9. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many Proverbs with great care. Now, if you've been with us from the very beginning of this study, right there in verse 9, perhaps you noticed that the voice of the book has shifted. And really, I should say that the voice of the book has shifted back to the voice that we encountered at the very beginning of the book. If you flip back to Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 1, the very opening of the book, we heard the statement of, A narrator or an editor who said the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. That's what the the editor or the narrator says at the very beginning of Ecclesiastes, and then immediately after that, the voice of the book shifts to the voice of the preacher, the son of David, the king in Jerusalem. We're, We're fairly certain that's King Solomon. And so from chapter 1, verse 3, all the way to chapter 12, verse 8, we've had Solomon's voice, Solomon's words, Solomon's wisdom. But now in verse 9, we shift back to not hearing the words of the preacher, but hearing somebody describe the words of the preacher to us. This narrator or this editor, he tells us what Solomon was doing. He says, the preacher taught the people knowledge, and he did that by weighing And studying and arranging many Proverbs with great care. In other words, Solomon, when he sought to write Ecclesiastes, didn't just go to Wikipedia and find a bunch of random articles and copy and paste all of that information and send it our way. When he went to submit these words of wisdom to us, he didn't just pull a volume of the Encyclopedia Britannica off the shelf, flip open to a certain article that seemed appropriate, and copy and paste all of that for us. No, Solomon has done A diligent and earnest work of paying attention to the world, of observing life as he sees it and as he knows it, of considering different proverbs and weighing them out to see if they have the appropriate weight to be included in these words of wisdom. But he's done that with a purpose in mind, with a goal in mind. He has carefully weighed and studied and arranged many proverbs with great care under the supervision and inspiration of God's Holy Spirit so that what the editor says in verse 10 might be true. The preacher sought to find words of delight and uprightly. He wrote words of truth. Words of delight. Words of truth. That's why Solomon Weighed and arranged and carefully considered all of these things. That's why Solomon wrote these things for us. So that he might give to us words of delight. Words of truth. Let's talk about each of those things. We'll start with words of truth. Now we have to acknowledge the fact that our culture today has a fairly funny and confused understanding about what truth actually is and how truth actually works. See, every culture in human history before ours understood and believed that truth was objective, unchanging, and something that came completely from outside of us. Right? It was not something that we developed inside of us. It's not something that, that ever changed, and it's not something that was subject to our you know, opinion or evaluation. Truth was objective, it was unchanging, and it was completely outside of us. But our culture has completely turned that on its head. And we now believe, with our whole hearts it seems, that truth is subjective, it comes from inside of us, and it's constantly changing because we're constantly changing people, and so truth is subject to change just as we are subject to change. That's how the world around us today views and understands truth. In other words, I think this is maybe a helpful way to think about it, our culture today views and understands truth the way it would view and understand a painting rather than the way I would view and understand something like gravity. Imagine for a moment with me that you're invited one day to some fancy art gallery opening in some posh downtown setting where everything is going to be very fancy and pretentious. And so you put on your most fancy and pretentious clothes and you go to this fancy and pretentious art gallery opening where you're going to be surrounded by other fancy and pretentious people and they're going to be serving hors d'oeuvres that are fancy and pretentious and serving drinks that are so fancy and pretentious that they're served to you in something called a flute rather than a regular glass. And you're, you're hobnobbing with other fancy and pretentious people at this fancy and pretentious gallery opening and everybody's looking at the paintings that are on the wall and they're evaluating those paintings, right? They're commenting on those paintings and they're saying things like, my, I think his courage and bravery in this piece is just so marvelous. Or they're saying something like, you know, I feel like this work here is a little bit too derivative of so and so's work over here. Or I think this lacks the imagination of his earlier efforts, or something fancy and pretentious like that, right? But people are gonna be evaluating the paintings on the wall. And you know what? If you do that, that's fine. We're talking about a painting. You can love it, you can hate it, that's up to you. It is fine if your evaluation of artwork is subjective and changing and internal because it's art. But then let's say for a moment that you were to step outside onto the balcony of this fancy and pretentious art gallery and you saw somebody was leaning up against the guardrail of that balcony and perhaps they'd been in their flutes a little bit too much that night and so they were a little bit tipsy and they were leaning a little bit too far back. You wouldn't in that moment approach that person and say, You know what, I'd like to engage you in a debate about the force and effect of gravity. You wouldn't approach them and say, in my opinion, humbly put forth, it appears that you are a little bit too close to the edge of this. No, if you saw them doing that, you would say, watch out! Because you know the force of gravity. It is objective. It is unchanging. And it is not something that comes from inside of us, right? It is absolutely built on what is outside of us. Nobody's going to debate. Nobody's going to argue about the existence of gravity and its force when somebody's life is in peril. Friends, truth, it can't be something that changes constantly. It can't be something that is in the eye of the beholder. It can't be something that we find inside of ourselves some way, somehow. There is no such thing as my truth as opposed to your truth. There is just truth. Solomon, he writes these Proverbs to give us words of truth. He writes these Proverbs so that there might be a rock-solid foundation of truth upon which we can build our lives. He writes these words of truth so that we might know the God who truly exists and who has truly revealed Himself through His Word. He worked to weigh and study And arrange these many proverbs with great care. So that we could know true words from false words. So that we could know the truth from what is deception. So that we could understand what is real as opposed to what is unreal. So I ask you this morning. Does your life reflect the fact that God's words are truth? That he speaks to us. With true words, not false words. In other words, is his the voice you listen for most of all? As, as the din of just noise and, and voices in your life rages around you, are the true words of God, the words that you are listening for most carefully, more carefully than you listen to your social media feed, more carefully than you listen to whatever news commentators you particularly pay attention to, more carefully than you pay attention to that person that you're trying to impress or that person that you're trying to hold on to, more carefully than you pay attention to anything, are you listening for the true words, the true voice of your God who speaks to you through his word? Solomon wrote these words so that we might have words of truth and so that we might have, secondly, Verse 10 tells us words of delight. I think that means that Solomon wrote these words to be beautiful words. that were to us, a source of pleasure and a source of delight. As I was thinking about that, I was just immediately reminded of the words of Psalm 19, which describe all of the words of the Lord in this way. The psalmist says, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. But then he goes on and he says, more to be desired are they, the laws of the Lord. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. In other words, the words of the Lord are more precious and valuable than a great deal of fine gold. And also, sweeter also than honey are they, and the drippings of the honeycomb. So the words of the Lord are to be precious to us, and sweet to us. They are to be a source of delight to us. They are to create in us a hunger for the Lord and an affection for the Lord. We should take pleasure in God's word. In other words, do you? Does this sound like your attitude towards scripture this morning? Do you delight in God's word? Friends, I really wrestled with that question about a year ago when I was watching the movie Avengers Endgame with my two oldest sons in a movie theater. You remember movie theaters back in the day? It's so 2019. Anyway, we are in the movie theater watching this particular movie and you don't have to know a ton about this movie or this movie franchise, I don't think, to be able to track with where I'm headed here, but... Avengers Endgame, um, when we saw it, there were like 100 strangers in the theater, right? And the, the enthusiasm in the room for that movie was palpable. I mean, like at every setback in the film, like people were gasping and sighing. And then every time the, like, the heroes did something cool, like there was cheering in the theater, I was looking around thinking like, man, these people are way weirder than I expected. But there was just this off-the-charts level of enthusiasm for that movie when we saw it in the theater. And as I watched it play out on the screen, I really found myself convicted and just praying, God, I pray that I never delight in some stupid movie more than I delight in your word. And I thought that especially because Avengers Endgame really reminds me a lot of the Bible. Now, in the Avengers franchise, right? it's, it's this franchise of like 20 movies and they came out over a period of like 10 or 15 years across Walt Disney, like $40 trillion to pull that off. But they did that So that with all of these 20 movies, they could tell one story. And that's very evident at the end of Endgame when you see all of these actors and actresses who have played significant roles in the earlier movies but not big roles in the end movies, but they're all there on those final scenes because what we realize at the end of that saga is that all of these movies were telling this one story about this one group of heroes and what they did to overcome this one villain and his evil forces that were at work. And I watched that and I thought, you know, that's that's just like the Bible. Because in the Bible, we have 66 different books told to us, written for us by about 40 different human authors. It took about 1,000 years for that to come together. It required three different human languages in order for that to come together. But there's no book like this in the world because all 66 of those books, all 40 of those authors, all 1,000 of those years worked together to tell us one story the story of the one true hero who has truly overcome evil in the world, the one true hero who has put to death sin and death and who is coming again to restore all things and to make all things new. And so in that sense, Avengers, it reminded me so much of the way the Bible works and the way the Bible is put together. And so I watched that movie and I just thought, gosh, and I pray, Lord, that I never love something silly like this movie more than I love you. I pray that I I take pleasure in that I delight in your word more than I delight in anything else. And I prayed that because I hope you believe it can happen. I hope you believe that, that we can fall more in love with some silly movie franchise than we fall in love with the word of the Lord. See, the greatest challenge to us, if you're sitting in this room today, if you're watching this live stream, not the greatest challenge, the greatest danger we face it's not that one day we're going to wake up and we're just going to decide that the Bible isn't true. I mean, that is a danger. That can happen. It might happen to some of us. But the far greater and more pressing danger for each and every one of us is that we're going to wake up one morning and we're going to be bored by the Bible. We're going to wake up one morning and we're going to be just indifferent to it. We're going to be apathetic about it. We're just not going to care. We're not going to take delight in the word of the Lord we're not going to find pleasure in the word of the Lord and instead it's just going to be like some cold dead obsolete thing that we don't care about and so as I watched that movie and as I thought about words like these from King Solomon the preacher sought to find words of delight And I just thought that these were words that should force us to our knees in prayer. They're words that should should just lead us to pray, God, make my heart delight in your word. Fan the flame of my affection for you through your word. Help me to treasure and to take pleasure in your word of truth. That's my prayer for you, church. My prayer for us as a people is that we would be people who truly and genuinely delight in God's word. And We have to pray that that would be true because that's not a, a switch that you can flip. right? You can't just wake up one morning and decide today's the day that I'm gonna find pleasure in God's word. Today's the day that God's word is gonna be sweeter than honey to me or more valuable than much fine gold to me something that only the spirit of god can do in us so i pray for you and for me and for us that we would be people who delight in the word of the lord and that we find these words to be words of delight now that doesn't mean that reading god's word will always be pleasant and i say that because the very next verse makes that clear right verse 11 The writer, he says, the words of the wise are like goads and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. Now, note a couple things. These words are given. Again, this isn't truth that came from inside of Solomon. It's truth that Solomon received from the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. In the same way, we didn't just arrive at this truth ourselves. This truth has been given to us. It's been revealed to us by the Holy Spirit of God, but it's been revealed To be both nails and goads, the writer says. Like nails, firmly fixed is the wisdom of the Lord are the truths of the Lord. Scripture, it anchors us in place. When the world around us would send us adrift, Scripture holds us firmly in place. It anchors us to reality. It provides us with stability so that we don't drift away from the Lord and His purposes and His ways. And these words also are like goads, the writer says. What's a goad? Well, in the ancient world, a shepherd, he carried two tools with him. One was a staff. You've probably seen a picture of a shepherd holding his staff in some you know, pleasant pastoral scene. It's the long stick with the crook on the end. He can use that crook to just gently usher a sheep in the direction that it needs to go. And that's what a staff was primarily for, right? It was for direction. Like a shepherd would use his staff to herd his sheep in the direction he wanted them to go. A goad, his other tool, was a much shorter stick, usually with a nail or a sharp piece of rock or bone attached to the end. And the shepherd would save the goad for whenever he had a sheep that wouldn't go in the direction he wanted that sheep to go. If he had a sheep that was straying from the path, straying from the flock, he would pull out his goad and he would prod his sheep with that goad. And the pain of that prod would lead the sheep back in the direction the shepherd intended for it to go. And so if you were a shepherd, you had your staff with which you would provide direction for your sheep. And you had your goad which you would use to provide correction for your sheep. Now, there are two things I think that we need to think about as we consider the fact that the writer here tells us that Scripture the words of truth should be like goads in our lives. First is the fact that the reality that God corrects and rebukes and disciplines his children is really an expression of his love for us. Right? God rebukes and corrects those he loves. He disciplines those he loves. If he's not doing that in your life, it might be because you're not his child. Just think about it this way. If I am walking through the grocery store and I encounter a mom with a very young child in the cereal aisle and that child is throwing a temper tantrum because mom won't buy him that box of Lucky Charms that he really likes. But if that is somebody else's child, if that's a stranger's child, maybe I smile at the mom, offer her a word of encouragement, but then I just keep on walking, right? That's not my kid, not my responsibility. Maybe I'm thinking to myself, gosh, that kid's going to turn out to be a total brat. I don't know, but it's not my child, so I don't have to worry about it. I'm not responsible there for disciplining and correcting and rebuking that child. But if it is my child, if I'm walking through that grocery store and that is my son or my daughter throwing a hissy fit because of cereal that is 90% marshmallows, you better believe it is my responsibility to correct and discipline that child as an expression of my love for them. Because they are my child, I will correct them. I will rebuke them. And I will discipline them. In the same way, it's because of his love for us and his commitment to us that God corrects us and goads us through his word. Which leads me to the second thing we need to consider here. We should be concerned if we never find Scripture correcting us. We should be concerned we never open Scripture and feel the pain, right, if we never find Scripture changing our minds, if we never find Scripture changing our behaviors, if we never find Scripture convicting us, if we never open the Bible and realize that we are wrong, and that should be an indication to us that our hearts are hard and that we're farther from the Lord than we thought we were. Church, when was the last time you let the Bible cry? you? When was the last time you let the Bible rebuke you? When was the last time you opened your Bible and immediately were confronted, not by some past sin in your life, and not by somebody else's sin, when was the last time you opened your Bible and were convicted about your own sin? When was the last time you opened your Bible and walked away repenting because of what you beheld in the word of the Lord, because of how the word of the Lord goaded you as you opened it, and as you read it. Like goads, Scripture should rebuke us and correct us, just as it guides and directs us. When was the last time that happened for you? The final thing that Scripture should do in us is it should give us perspective we keep reading. This is what verse 12 says. The writer says, my son, be aware of anything beyond these. These wise saying, he means. The book of Ecclesiastes in particular is what he has in mind. We can extrapolate out of that to say, beware of anything beyond these words, the words of the Bible as a whole. And he says, of making many books, there is no end. And much study is a weariness of the flesh. Really what the writer is doing here is he's urging us to be discerning. He's urging us to realize that not everything that's out there is helpful. Not everything that's out there is going to cultivate a deeper love for the Lord or sweeter fellowship with Him. Not everything that's out there is going to honor Christ truly. And so we should beware for the making of many books. There is no end of it. It's the same word of exhortation I would give you when you walk into a bookstore and you head over to the spirituality or religion or even the, the Christian aisle. Not everything that you will find there is helpful. Not everything that you find there is going to stir your affection for the Lord. And so be discerning. The writer goes on, verse 13. He says, The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. This is the whole duty of man. In other words, this is the summary of King Solomon's teaching. This is everything that King Solomon has laid before us. We are to fear God and we are to keep his commandments. Now, many times in the book of Ecclesiastes, we've seen this exhortation to fear God. It's in chapter three, chapter five, chapter seven, three times in chapter eight. Again and again and again, Solomon has come to us pleading with us to fear God. And how do we know that we're fearing God? We do it by keeping his commandments. When we keep his commandments, that indicates That we have fear of the Lord. If we don't keep his commandments, that indicates that we have not feared God. This is just a very appropriate way for the writer to summarize King Solomon's teaching. But then he adds to it. And he tells us in verse 14 why we are to fear God. He says, for God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. For God will bring every deed into judgment. With every seen thing? No. With every known thing? No. With every well understood thing? No. With every secret thing. Whether good or evil. The writer is telling us there will be a day when it is as if someone has climbed inside of our heads and into our hearts and transcribed everything that we've ever seen, everything that we've ever felt, everything that we've ever thought, everything that we've ever done, everything that we've ever considered doing and then ultimately not done, everything that we should have done that we didn't do, everything that we should have thought that we didn't think, everything that we should have felt that we didn't feel, he's going to lay our lives bare for the one who will bring everything into judgment. Now why does Ecclesiastes Tell us about final judgment here. Why is that the mic drop, walk-off-the-stage moment for this book? Well, the reality is that this is the truth. It gives everything in life meaning. So you remember how Ecclesiastes starts? We read it earlier. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. And again, and again, and again, and again in this book, The preacher, he's just been laying that out there, right? He's saying, everything under the sun is vain. Is this all there is? Is essentially what he's asking. Is this all you've got? Is everything in life truly this chasing after the wind? Or is there something more? Now, at the very last verse, the writer, he says, yes. There's absolutely something more to life than what you see with your eyes under the sun. There is a God in heaven who created all things. There's a God in heaven who sustains all things. There's a God in heaven who rules over all things. And there is a life to come after this life that we've lived under the sun. One day, the dead will be raised, and every person will stand before the throne of God judgment. And it will be revealed on that day. That every single thing has eternal significance. See, it's at the final judgment, friends, that we'll witness the true meaning of everything. It's at the final judgment, when God judges us righteously, that we'll realize the significance of how we spent our time and how we spent our money and how we invested in our relationships. It's at the final judgment that we'll realize how significant it was what we read and what we watched and what we ate is that the final judgment when we will realize how significant our relationship with our spouse really was and how significant our relationship with our children or our parents really was is that the final judgment when we'll be judged for how we loved them and how we loved our neighbors At the final judgment it will reveal the absolute and eternal significance of everything if that's true and what matters most in life is the personal decision that each one of us makes about Jesus Christ. See, if God will indeed judge all things, then every person needs to be found righteous in God's eyes. And church, that will never happen if we're trusting in our own righteousness. That will never happen if we're trusting in our own efforts. The only way we might ever be found righteous as if we're trusting in a perfect Perfect.